Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is the producer extraordinaire, Hannah Five Names, and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Good morning. This is RP3 and Company as we broadcast live from lovely Hattiesburg, Mississippi, as we took our show on the road for the next three hours, followed by a delightful two hours of Kevin Foot and Footnotes. You're listening to the game, 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers, and of course, those Houston Astros that begin their World Series run tonight. Whew, lots to get to on this road trip edition of the show. Of course, we're going to be talking about New Orleans Saints with Fletcher Mackle. He'll join us for the Big Easy Blitz. That'll be at 8.30 today. Of course, fantasy football advice from our guy Zach Miller at 8.15. At 8 o'clock, a special interview with Carrie Maggard, breast cancer survivor. It is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. We'll have that for you. And of course, at 7 o'clock, an hour from right now, our first guest of this Friday edition of RP3 and Company is going to be our good friend James Yasko from the Lima Time Time podcast. So we've got four guests lined up for you today, majority of them on the back end of the show, and we got plenty to get to. McNeese football, of course, Saints. Oh, man, a big weekend for them. Can they get the job done? And, of course, We'll touch on the World Series between the Astros and the Phillies, the latest involving that special connection between Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase, which will have to be put on hold for a little while. But we got to lead off with the Louisiana Raging Cajuns. They have always historically struggled against Southern Miss here in Hattiesburg. Coming to the Rock has always been a problem for them. They entered the game last night. 1-23 and 23 overall, all-time, playing in Hattiesburg. The one lone win occurred way back in 1989 when Brian Mitchell was leading the offense and they were able to pull out a win against Brett Favre and Southern Miss. That was a long time ago. It's always been that way. They've always struggled here. They, they, they compete far better against the Golden Eagles back at Cajun Field. And last night's game seemed like it was going to be one of those lopsided affairs that's been part of the history of this rivalry. Because Southern Miss, man, things kind of just went their way right off the bat. And what I mean by that is that the first play from scrimmage, the first offensive play, Chris Moncrief picks off the Southern Miss quarterback. And you're thinking, whoa. Cajuns, they're riding that momentum of beating Marshall on the road and then dominating Arkansas State. They're going to look to make it three in a row. They're coming in. They're getting led by their defense. The problem for the Cajuns right off the bat was they, weren't un they were unable to take advantage of that. That turnover resulted in no points. They took a gamble to go for it on fourth down. They had Chris Smith out there back playing for the first time in multiple games. 
Coach Dez made the decision to go for it on fourth down instead of kicking the 47-yard field goal from Kenny Almadeus. They don't get it. And then Southern misses off and running. They used a Wildcat quarterback, Frank Gore Jr., their star running back. They utilized him in the Wildcat, and the Cajuns' defense had problems adjusting to that, slowing that down. They, they had trouble slowing Frank Gore Jr. down. And they got up on the Cajuns, and we were sitting in the press box going, this is, this is something that's going to get ugly in a hurry. And it accelerated fairly quickly in this ball game because Southern Miss just started going up and down. They had big chunk plays. They were using their Wildcat quarterback to throw touchdown passes, like 50-plus yard touchdown passes. And the Cajuns were caught off guard. They didn't seem to know how to defend the Wildcat. They were a little bit slow. They were trying to get pressure, but they were just half a second behind. Some busted coverage on the back end. And then offensively, they just couldn't get anything going as well. Ben Woolridge looked off. They were able to pressure him, get him out of the pocket more times than he wanted to. And this game started, I mean, <laughs> but it was also a game that was absolutely just kind of bizarre. You have the interception on the very first offensive play. And then you have... <laughs> You have the two-point conversion, I'm sorry, an extra point that was blocked and returned for two points by the Cajuns. Later, Woolridge gets called for intentional grounding while in the end zone, which is a safety. You had a 52-yard pass play from Frank Gore, which was a Wildcat quarterback, a halfback, essentially throwing a 52-yard touchdown pass. You had then a 76-yard touchdown pass from Southern Miss. Almadares hits a 50-yard field goal, but then misses a 40-yard field goal. This was an absolute kind of bananas game, and you just had to kind of hold your breath. Now, credit the Cajuns and credit Coach Dez and his team because they didn't give up. They could have easily given up in this game when things started piling up on them, especially there in the second quarter. But they fought, they clawed back into this ball game. Ben Woolridge ended up having a decent game, career high in pass attempts, 46 of them, but only made 21. He had three picks. Now a couple of those were late in the game when things had already kind of got out of control. But 21 of 46 for 336, two touchdowns, including a sensational one to Michael Jefferson, who had a record night himself. Six catches, 179 yards, including a 61-yard touchdown. And they made a game of this. They clawed back. They had a chance. And even the defense finally started figuring out how to slow down that Wildcat quarterback, how to slow down Frank Gore Jr. And made this game very close late. Now, they also had another turnover. Chris Smith fumbled the ball there in the third quarter. That was kind of a killer for the Cajuns because they could have had an opportunity to kind of get back into the game there. But they have a possession late in this ball game where it is fourth and goal, and Ben has nowhere to run. Like he, he has no open wide receivers. He gets flushed out of the pocket like he'd been done numerous times throughout the game, and he just has to throw it out of bounds. 
and it's a turnover on downs. And the defense comes right back out. Zion Hill Green forces a fumble, strips the ball out. They recover it. They're able to score, make it a little bit closer there. But unfortunately, it's not enough. It's not enough for this team to be able to mount the comeback as they lose 39-24. to The extra touchdown at the end was a pick six for Southern Miss. And this is one of the closer games in this series, specifically in Hattiesburg. But the Cajuns fall to 1-24 overall in Hattiesburg, with the lone win being, of course, the 1989 game with Brian Mitchell leading the charge. A couple things that stand out to me about this game. Third down conversions, the Cajuns were not very good. They ended up being 5 of 15. Once again, a little bit of that comes from the comeback there in the second half. But they were 0 of 5 on fourth down conversions. You try to go for it. You come up short. Credit Southern Miss's defense. It was nasty. We had talked about that throughout the week with people as we ramping up to preview the football game. And they came out and played. Forced four turnovers. Cajuns entered the game ranked. They had plus nine in the turnover margin. That got knocked down a peg here as they committed four turnovers, a season-high four turnovers, the three picks and the one Chris Smith fumble. And they were able to force a couple turnovers themselves with the interception right at the beginning of the game and then the strip force fumble by Zion Hill Green there late in the ball game. But it was just too much. It was just too much Southern Miss. Southern Miss made the bigger plays. And you'll look at the box score, and it's going to be interesting because the longest time in this ballgame we were talking about in the press box, I think Southern Miss had more than 100 yards of total offense for the majority of the game. They, they had really distanced themselves from the Cajuns. And when the dust settled, you all had 439 yards compared to 339. So in the second half, the Cajuns were able to kind of figure it out a little bit offensively, being able to get multiple people involved. They were able to start to run the football better there, especially in the second half. And they outgained Southern Miss, but the turnovers were killer, 4-2. to two. That was huge in this ballgame. Penalties were pretty much a wash for both. But the third down conversions. Southern Miss ended up being 7-16. to 16. Cajuns 5-15. of 15 in the red zone. Southern Miss, three for three. Cajuns, two for three. You leave points out there. Makes a difference. And the quick turnaround, could that have played a role in this? I think so, absolutely. But Southern Miss had the quick turnaround too, right? So they both played on Saturday. They both had to turn around and play on Thursday. Now, the difference being the Cajuns had to go out there and they're the ones traveling so maybe a little bit of a difference there, but definitely a disappointing night for the Louisiana Raging Cajuns. I think they felt this was a game that they could have won, should have won, but like I said, it just started off. Moncrief gets the interception. First offensive play of the game, it's an interception for the Cajuns, but they couldn't do anything with it. And maybe they should have taken the points there to go up, 
because they knew they were going to be facing a nasty defense and points were going to be at a premium. They gambled. They decided to go for it. And it ended up not working out for them. Southern Miss made them pay. And then they really struggled with the Wildcat quarterback. They hadn't seen it. They admitted to that afterwards. Now, they didn't make any excuses for that. They said they should have done their job when we talked to a couple of the players. And you'll hear from them coming up, Zion Hill Green and Chris Moncrief. But they they couldn't do that. They struggled with containing Frank Gore Jr. And once again, he burned them with the pass. I mean, that's the thing that can deflate a team in a heartbeat is that, okay, you're trying to stop this Wildcat quarterback, and then he chucks it up for, you know, a 56-yard touchdown or 52-yard touchdown, rather. That just takes everything out of you. It just does. And they didn't run the ball for an enormous amount of yardage, Southern Miss. They really didn't. And Gore himself only had 87 yards on the ground on 23 carries. But every time they felt like they got him or got the running back, they were able to just break a tackle, in particular Gore, and instead of holding them back from converting that third down or picking up that first down, he was able to squeeze his way through to pick up the first. So that was key in this ball game was the inability for the Cajuns to adjust quicker to the Wildcat quarterback, the empty possessions, leaving some points out on the field. That was key in this as well. And the defense was at times a little out of coverage, you know, a little out of position rather on some plays. But the other part was this, is that the Cajuns offensive line, which had been playing so much better, had no answer for the pass rush. Like Southern Miss was able to bring their guys on the edge, collapse that pocket, and Ben didn't have a ton of time to throw. And when he was, he was having to throw on the run. So that's what really stands out to me about this ball game. What was the difference? Leaving some points out on the field. That was one. Two, the inability to be able to, to contain the Wildcat quarterback schemes earlier. Now, they were able to do it later in the ball game when they started climbing back in and rallying on the road, but by that time it was a little too little too late. Third down conversion was key. That was another one. And then the pass protection, the inability to be able to give Ben a clean pocket for longer. Once again, a lot of those things they improved upon throughout the game. It was just by that time you're trying to come back. And, look, and by that time you're going four wide. You're trying to come back. You're going a little bit more with your up-tempo. It kind of changes their approach, the defense by Southern Miss. But definitely a disappointing night here in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, for the Louisiana Raging Cajuns as they are unable to get the win. And now they fall to 4-4 four and four. in 2-3 and three in conference play. A division championship is out of the realm of possibilities. That's not going to happen now. And now they're just going to be focused on getting to a bowl game. Six wins probably gets it done. We were talking with folks there at the press box. Corey Diaz was there. Of course, Kevin Foote was there. We were even talking to some folks from Yule. Six wins probably gets you a bowl game if you're the Cajuns because the Sun Belt is so even, right? It, there's not a dominant team in the conference. You have teams that are lower tier that are beating really good teams and, and – so, if the Cajuns get to six wins, they're probably going to a bowl game. 
but here it is for Louisiana. You're four and four now with four games to go. You got Troy, one of the best teams in the Western Division this year, coming to Cajun Field a week from Saturday. Then it's a quick turnaround right after that as you welcome in Georgia Southern on a Thursday night game on national TV. Georgia Southern's been wildly up and down. Which Georgia Southern team are you going to face? Then it's on the road at Florida State. And then you wrap up the season on the road in San Marcos against Texas State. Those are not four easy games. You can't look at that schedule and go, oh, two wins for sure gets them to six. It's going to be a dogfight for the Louisiana Raging Cajuns. We'll talk more about this game. We'll hear from Coach Dez. We'll hear from the players. That's going to be coming up next right here on RP3 and Company. Special road trip edition as we're broadcasting live from Hattiesburg, Mississippi. You're listening to the game, 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers in the World Series-bound Houston Astros. Tune in every weekday at 8.15 a.m. and 3.15 p.m. for the LSU Sports Update, presented by Tibbs Trailers here on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Lopez Trail Run for Life 2022 is what? This Sunday. That's what. The 10K, 5K, or one-mile superhero fun run is taking place at the Cherokee Ridge Horse Farm located at 200 Flying W Road in Karen Crow. Participating supports Lopa and is a chance to honor Lopa's life-saving heroes and celebrating the gift of life. For more information about Lopez Trail Run for Life 2022, which is going to be this Sunday, in Karen Crow, go visit lopa.org. That's lopa.org. Louisiana Raging Cajuns fall to 4-4 four and four overall after last night's 39-24 loss to Southern Miss. They fall to 1-24 overall in this series history. Games played in Hattiesburg. Lone win, 1989. It's been a long time. Great atmosphere, 37,000. I do believe was the announced attendance last night. I'm sorry, 27,000 was the announced attendance. And it was a good crowd. Liked the atmosphere. Campus was nice. And they, they came out, they were loud, man. It wasn't the biggest stadium. The Rock isn't. But they were loud. And they were happy. They were happy about their Golden Eagles getting a win against the Louisiana Raging Cajuns. As for the Cajuns, what do you do? You have to dust yourself back off. They've done this before, right? They looked like things were going sideways. They were able to go on the road, get a win against Marshall, and then dominate Arkansas State. But now they have to get ready again because, once again, as I said before the timeout, what's left on the schedule? Troy, one of the best teams in the Sun Belt Conference Western Division. Then it's Georgia Southern. Which Georgia Southern team are you going to face on that Thursday night? You really don't know. You, you really don't. You really have no idea which Southern Miss, um, which Georgia Southern team you're going to be facing, because they've been wildly inconsistent, wildly inconsistent. So you got that game. That's a toss-up game. Troy, you're probably going to be the underdog on. You're going to be the underdog for Florida State there in Tallahassee. 
more than likely going to lose that game. So then it's a road trip to San Marcos and Texas State. So if you take out the Florida State game, that would make them four and five. So they're four and five with three other opportunities to get to six wins. So you really got to win two games out of three against Troy, Georgia Southern, and Texas State. Is it impossible? Absolutely not. It's not. It's not impossible. If this team plays to its potential and plays clean and well-executed football like they did against Marshall on the road or like they did last week against Arkansas State, they could beat all three of those teams. Absolutely they could. They could beat Troy, Georgia Southern, and Texas State. They have the potential. Whether or not they do it, and that's kind of the story of the Sunbelt Conference this season is these teams are not consistent. The consistency is the fact that they're inconsistent. Where you have one team looks great, that they're going to run away with the conference, that they're the best team in the conference, and then they lay an egg. And then the team that beats them, you're thinking, oh, they're going to build upon that. That can be something they can move on, use as a foundation piece for a great season. And then they don't. And then they lose to a bad team. So the Sun Belt is wide open. The Sun Belt is kind of upside down. But the Cajuns still have everything in front of them. But there's still some work to be done for sure. We talked about the turnaround, right? Playing on Saturday and then turning around and having to play on a, th- uh, on a Thursday night and doing, and doing it on the road. And Coach Des was asked afterwards, hey, did fatigue by any chance play a factor in this game? And this is what the man in charge of the Raging Cajuns had to say about that. No, I don't know. I, I don't know. You know, I, I felt like coming out, I felt like we were ready to play early, truthfully. I uh, felt like we were in a good spot, you know, warm-ups, all that stuff, just kind of the way the week went. Uh, we prepared really well, um, you know, just kind of came out and, and just gave up some big ones early and on offense, you know, really turned it over early. Uh, and and it, it just ended up being too much to come back from in the end. I, I felt like we were in a good spot, but certainly we're going to have to go back and, and look at things because we have another five-day turnaround coming up here in a couple weeks. So we we got we to gotta work on some things and, and, and find a way to get better at this process Every team is different, you know, and, and we, we did it pretty much the way that we've done it in the past. We, um, you know, we did a little more ball security than we did in the past, even though it doesn't look like it. Uh, but, you know, every team's different, and, and we got to figure out what works better for this team. So he wasn't using it as an excuse, the turnaround or the fact that they were fatigued. And, and once again, they get an interception right off the bat, right? Their defense comes up pumped out they got the script on the helmet they're ready to go and Moncrief makes a great play diving interception get the ball on their side of the field they got a chance to give it to their offense for the offense to set the tone and they couldn't get things going early weren't weren't able to run the football effectively early on in this ball game and well really overall in this game the Cajuns only were able to rush for 103 yards on 30 carries. So weren't able to run the football like they wanted to, and that kind of made them one-dimensional. But on that very first drive, they get the ball, they get great field position, and then they make the decision, instead of kicking a long field goal by Kenny, they opt to go for it on fourth down. And I asked Coach Dez about that decision and what was the process behind it instead of getting points going for it on fourth down like that on the very first offensive possession. 
Yeah, it was. You know, I, I felt like in this game, you know, I certainly didn't see it going this way score-wise and, and things like that. Um, I did feel like we'd better run the ball a little bit more effectively early than we did. Um, and they had a good plan for us, and they made some good plays. But, yeah, I, I felt like we'd get the turnover plus side of the field. Don't waste the opportunity uh, to try to go for it. Had a play that we felt good about, um, you know, and obviously just, uh, you know, didn't get it done right there. And the way I felt like this game would go, felt like defensively we'd be able to get some stops right there. And really defensively we did, you know, other than a couple of big plays that kind of they, they made and kind of ran with. So, you know, it, it's one of those deals you just felt like in the moment, man, we could capture it, we could get this fourth down, um, and we'd be in really good shape to go down there and take the lead and get off to a fast start, but uh, certainly not the way it happened. So they felt like they had the opportunity, they had to go for it. And he was banking on, you hear it right there, he was banking on the defense to be able to step up and give them back some possessions, right? And unfortunately, it took longer for the defense to make that adjustment to what Southern Miss was doing. And the Cajuns weren't able to kind of get ready for it, right? They weren't able to turn that switch sooner. Maybe if they had, maybe if they had been able to make that adjustment maybe there in the second quarter, they'd had a chance. And look, they still had a chance even at the end of the ball game, they still had a chance to force overtime here. They were able to rally, so they still had a chance to, to make something happen, unfortunately, unable to do so. Pass rush disrupted Ben Woolridge for most of the night. I mean, once again, he ended up throwing 46 times for 336 yards. That's probably not the winning formula that the Raging Cajuns want to have, right? they probably don't want to have to throw the ball 46 times. That's not in their DNA. They'd much rather be able to have a wildly effective run game. But he was also sacked four times and was pressured far more. And Coach Dez talked about Southern Mississippi's pass rush and how they struggled with it. Yeah, they've got a good pass rush package. Um, and we knew that if it got into, you know, we felt like our third down plan was good. We had some ways to protect it to help with some chips and things like that. Uh, but when you get in that many two-minute situations, you got a lot of one-on-ones, and they did a good job. You know, I mean, they put a bunch of pass rushers on the field, and those guys are pretty relentless. You know, and they they got you know they've got good pass rushers. Those guys play well, and on the back end, you know, they did a pretty good job whenever they needed to. You know, when they played some zone at the end, let the pass rushers tee off, or we had to hold it a little bit, and, and you know, that's hard. You, know you have good pass rushers, and that's the next situation. And. Defensively, they made adjustments and they played better in the second half for sure. And then the offense started to come alive a little bit and were able to figure out things late in this ballgame. And once again, the Cajuns ran more plays, 76 to 66. They had 100 yards more of offense, 439 to 339. But Southern Miss was able to run the ball more effectively. Southern Miss was better on third down conversions. The Cajuns were 0 of 5 on fourth down conversions. Southern Miss was perfect in the red zone and the turnover margin. And the Cajuns gave up too many big plays defensively. Now, they also struggled with that Wildcat quarterback, but as the game went along, they got better. They were able to uh, figure that out a little bit, was able to slow down Frank Gore Jr. more, and Chris Moncrief, Star linebacker, one of the leaders on the defense. He's the one that got the interception on the very first offensive play of the ballgame. 
he was asked about his thoughts about them coming up short and the play of the defense overall from start to finish. It wasn't complicated. We just when you when you come in the game, if you don't have your mind right, you have to, you. I mean, you have to come out swinging. If you don't, you will get swung on. You will get hit in the mouth. As a defense as a whole, from my eyes, we weren't disciplined tonight. We didn't. We weren't disciplined at first. We didn't handle the business. We should have came out swinging. But we just we got hit in the mouth first. That's just the guy and the truth. And we had to recuperate and we had to come back. You you hear the passion in his voice. Anytime you talk to Chris, he's a fiery guy, and he gets the you know. <laughs> He puts that on them. He said, you know, we didn't come out. We didn't come out swinging like we were supposed to. We were supposed to come out swinging. We didn't. We didn't get the job done. And, you know, you can hear it in his voice that they're putting this on them. They feel like they didn't do their job. And, and, you know, you have guys like that on the defensive side of the football for the Cajuns. Chris Moncrief, you know, Zion Hill, Green is another. That They don't make excuses. They're not going to sit there and say, well, you know, the offense, you know, committed four turnovers, a season-high four turnovers. I mean, we'll say that. They're not going to say that because they're going to put it on them. They feel like they should have done a better job. This team is, is led by its defense. We've talked about that all season long. And the defense struggled. Too many big plays, too many big chunk plays, and they struggled with the Wildcat quarterback. Now, they made those adjustments, and as the game got along, they got better at it. But by that time, they'd already buried, you know, had already – you know, dug themselves into a pretty, pretty large hole, right? And the other thing that stood out to me is that they were close, though. And what I mean by that is that, you know, the Cajuns, there was a lot more blitzing in this game. They, they dialed it up. They felt like that was their way of affecting the game. And they were just this close. I mean, they were blitzing, and they were just like a half second off. Or the Southern Miss offensive line was able to, to pass protect just enough to get the plays off. And Zion Hill Green talked about their game plan of blitzing, but not getting to the quarterback. Uh, you know, that happens in football. That happens. You know, not every blitz is going to hit. Also, uh, when you play a quarterback that has quick rhythm throws, you know, that's throwing immediately. As soon as he gets the ball in his hands, you know, that will happen. So I feel like uh, as a defense, you know, I preached on the sideline to keep going. You know, no matter what play is called, no matter we're down in distance, we have to execute the defense, you know, but uh, Southern Miss did a good job dialing it up. So the Cajuns, 4-4 four and four now, 2-3 and three in Sunbelt Conference play. And once again, they'll welcome in the Troy Trojans a week from Saturday. And then after that, it's another quick five-day turnaround as they welcome in Georgia Southern on a Thursday night game. That's will be nationally broadcast. Then it's a trip to Tallahassee for Florida State. And then after that, a trip to San Marcos, Texas. Lovely San Marcos, Texas. Kevin Foote tells me it's one of his favorite places to go in the state of Texas. They have to figure it out if they want to get back to a bowl game. we got to take a timeout. When we return here on RP3 and Company, we're going to shift gears from the college game to the pro game. Going to talk a little New Orleans Saints football and the news coming out about a former LSU Tiger and a fan favorite here in the state of Louisiana. He's going to be on the shelf for a while. We'll get to that. That's all coming up next right here on the game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station and your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Great news, my sports-loving friend. No more aimlessly searching for sports talk love by swiping left or right. That's because you've already found the perfect match for sports talk love that is... 
Now back to the only lover you'll ever need. The game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Lafayette Marble and Granite offers the largest selection of granite, quartz, and marble in Acadiana. And Chris and his team appreciate the opportunity to earn your business. As you've heard me tell you before, Lafayette Marble and Granite provides more than show-stopping marble countertops for your kitchens, your bathrooms, and your man caves. LMG also now has an extensive selection of custom shower builds with their new crowd-free shower lines. That's right. No muss, no fuss. And you know what? In a few years, you don't have to worry about the odor that sometimes comes with grouted showers. So make sure to visit their website, lmgelite.com. That's lmgelite.com. They have live inventory updated every single Wednesday. And you can check out all their sensational services and the great products they have to offer right there at lmgelite.com. Visit it. Or, you know what, stop by their soon-to-be-renovated showroom located on I-49 North across from Hub City Ford and the Jockey Lot. It's Lafayette Marble and Granite. They're looking to earn your business, and trust me, earn it, they will. Raging Cajuns fall last night, 39-24 to 24 to 4-4 four and four overall and 2-3 and three in conference play. They'll look to get back on track a week from Saturday against Troy. And speaking of teams looking to get back on track, the New Orleans Saints. Well, they're looking just to get on track, period. Two and five on the season. But here's the crazy thing. Did you see any of the Tampa Bay Buccaneer game last night? They look dreadful. They've looked awful all year long. And because of Tampa's loss, another one, they're three and five. A win on Sunday against the Raiders unbelievably puts the Saints still right there in contention for the NFC South. I've said it for a few weeks now, and I'm going to keep saying it. it looks like eight wins is probably going to win this division. That's, that's what it looks like it's going to be. Eight, maybe, maybe a nine-win team. But you could be eight and nine and win the NFC South this year. That's what it appears to me. The division is not very good. That makes it frustrating for the Saints and Saints fans because the division is right there on a silver platter. No one wants it, and the Saints haven't been able to seize the opportunity here. Injuries have played a role, but just poor play. Some poor coaching, poor defensive play for sure. They just have not played to their potential. And But they have a chance on Sunday when the Las Vegas Raiders come to town Devontae Adams, Derek Carr, led by new head coach Josh McDaniels, of course. Dennis Allen years ago coached, you know, was the coach of the Raiders, and it didn't go well as it usually doesn't go well for most coaches who have coached the Oakland slash Las Vegas Raiders in the last 25 years. But we also know Andy Dalton's going to be the guy, at least for a little while. Some people believe that You'd still see Jameis Winston this season now that he's healthy. Unfortunately, that's not going to happen for the Winston supporters because they've made the decision to go with Andy Dalton. The red rifle is what they're going to roll with. And it makes sense in a lot of ways because they've been able to do some things offensively. 
part of that's also better play calling. They've been able to run the ball more effectively. They've been able to include Alvin Kamara and Taysom Hill more into the game plan. They didn't do that as much early in the season when Jameis was still playing. So what are they going to do? Can they get the job done come Sunday against the Raiders? It feels like a must win, but yet the rest of the teams in the NFC South are you know, trying to prove that it isn't a must win because, hey, the rest of the division is absolutely dreadful this year. Dalton is going to be the guy. Now, he was able to put up some big numbers, but he also had all those turnovers. Now, once again, two pick sixes. One of them was on him. The other one wasn't. And the other one hit Callaway in the hands. That's on Callaway. As my eighth-grade football coach used to say all the time, if you can touch it, you can catch it. So one of those pick sixes was on him. But Andy did throw the red zone interception that left points against the Cardinals. And then, of course, the other pick six was, was on Andy. But Pete Carmichael, the offensive coordinator, the play caller for the New Orleans Saints, thinks the red rifle is more than capable of leading this team and leading this offense as he has done for a handful of games. And he talked about what he likes so much about Dalton when he's under center. Look at it as a whole, you know, we've moved the ball efficiently. We've gotten in and out of the huddle and operated uh, well. Again, the, the biggest thing is, though, as a, as a unit, we have too many turnovers, and that's uh, – I feel like I've gotten up here and said that too many times, and it's just something that, uh, again, we have to keep focusing on, but we've got to get corrected. The turnovers have been a killer. The turnovers by the offense have been an absolute killer for this team. And, you know, defense has not played well – but the offense hasn't done them any favors by having costly turnovers. When you're the offense and you're putting points on the scoreboard for the other team, yeah, that's a it's it's hard to it's hard to get off the ground when that happens. It just is. Now, something that has happened in the past four games, four or five games or so, is the fact that we're seeing. Alvin Kamara utilized more, not only as a running back, but also in the passing game. And Carmichael talked about what AK brings to the table. Well, I think this. I think he's always been um, a smarter player that knows exactly what we're trying to accomplish. And then he also can come on the sidelines and tell you things about, hey, you know, call this for me, call this, because he has a good feel of what's going on and things that not only is he comfortable with, but I, I know that in the past he suggested plays where we've gotten to and they've been pretty successful. So I think that he just has such a great feel of everything that we're trying to accomplish offensively. But when uh, a specific play might, we might run a specific play and then he's like, ah, hey, you know, they they overplayed it or so whatever. He might come with a comment. He goes, hey, so let's, uh, let's try to think about getting to this. And you listen to him. Another guy that's really emerged this season, you know, we had a lot of question marks about the tight end position. Would Adam Troutman finally have a breakout year? Would Taysom Hill seize that? position after being moved over but the guy that's really thrived in the tight end role for the Saints has been Jawan Johnson he has stepped up he's been a great red zone target and has become a more and more reliable target overall and Carmichael talked about Johnson getting better from week to week yeah I think that uh every every um every day I think his he gets better and better and it progresses and I think uh obviously we're very comfortable with that with that uh, with him at that position and um and when you really uh, look at it and, and evaluate it, he's done, he's done a good job not only in the pass game but also blocking as well. And that was part of his game that wasn't there last year. 
when he started losing reps. He was always a big target, but he didn't understand the offensive playbook and he didn't understand blocking schemes. But he's picked that up and he's become quite the asset here for the Saints. Dalton, meanwhile, look, he's been through it all, right? He's been a second-round draft pick. He's been the starting quarterback. He's been a pro bowler. Then he's lost his job, and he's been a backup. And, you know, he's seen it all in many different situations, and the Red Rifle spoke on that yesterday. Yeah, no, for sure. I think that's one thing for for me the last several years. I've been in so many different situations and have gone through so much. And the biggest thing that we can do is – you know, take the experiences that we've had and learn and grow from it. And, you know, that's where I'm at. You know, I've been in this situation before where you sign up to be the backup and then the starter gets hurt and then you get a chance to play. And I've also been a starter and been hurt. Then the backup comes in and then he's playing. So I've, I've been through all the different, the different scenarios and situations. And so I think I've learned a lot from each year and, that, that I've played in just each experience that I've had. And I think it has allowed me to get to the place where I'm at now of just worry about right now. And one of the things that Dalton has learned over the years, and he learned that in Cincinnati when they were a perennial playoff team, is, look, if you want to be effective on offense, you got to make sure you capitalize on drives in the red zone. You can't come away with – empty points, you try to get, you need to get touchdowns instead of field goals. And he talked about making sure moving forward that they get those red zone numbers up. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think when you're down there, you've, we've got to be efficient on first and second down. I think if you look at the drives that we haven't scored touchdowns, you would say that you're in a third and long situation down there. And so I think that's the, the biggest thing that that we need to be really effective on first and second down to give us an opportunity or score on first and second down. You know, that, that helps too. Uh, so I, I think that's, that's the biggest thing is, I mean, when you're third and longer situations in the red zone, it could be tough. We'll see if the Saints can be more effective in the red zone, and we'll see if Andy Dalton can lead them to a win. Once again, both quarterbacks have one win as a starter this season. So, yet, the Saints at 2-5 and five still have a chance to be a playoff team because of what's going on in the NFC South. Would you got to take a timeout? When we return, we'll wrap up our number one. We'll unveil our poll question of the day. That's all coming up next right here on RP3 and Company. You're listening to The Game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and you're home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Welcome back to RP3 and Company Road Trip Edition as we're in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, as we were here last night for the Raging Cajuns Southern Miss Golden Eagles football game. That leads us to our poll question of the day. Four and four now overall. Four games left on the schedule. Troy a week from Saturday, then a five-day turnaround after that against Georgia Southern. Both of those games are at home at Cajun Field. Then back-to-back -back road games at Florida State and then at Texas State. They have four games left. They're four and four. Need to get to six to become bowl eligible. Do you believe the Louisiana Raging Cajuns are going to a bowl game? That's our poll question of the day. Yes, no, or maybe. JPK, the OD, I know you've been patiently waiting to vote on it. So go do that. Go comment. And we'll share your comments throughout today's program.
hour number one, whew, it's flown by on this road trip edition. But we got great stuff coming up in hour number two. We're going to preview the World Series, and we're going to do that with our very first guest, James Yasko of the Lima Time Time podcast. He joins us to kick off hour number two. You're listening to the game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and you're home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything, everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is the producer extraordinaire, Hannah Five Names, and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Our number two has arrived here in RP3 and Company on our special road trip edition of the show. We took our show on the road to Hattiesburg, Mississippi. We were here last night for the Raging Cajuns game against the Southern Miss Golden Eagles. The Louisiana Raging Cajuns, of course, fall short 39-24. And that leads us to our poll question of the day. Now that they're 4-4 four and four overall, 2-3 and three in the Sunbelt Conference, they have four games remaining on the regular season schedule. Can the defending conference champs just get back to a bowl game this year? Got to get to six wins to be bowl eligible. Can they do it? We want to hear from you, yes, no, or maybe our options. Go vote. Leave your thoughts. Just make sure they're clean. Don't get sideways. It's a hashtag no salt Friday, remember? So make sure to keep it clean. Leave your comments on Facebook and Twitter, and we'll share it throughout today's show. We talked a lot of Louisiana Raging Cajuns in hour number one. We touched on the New Orleans Saints, who are taking on the Las Vegas Raiders this Sunday. They are going to try to get back on track as well. But now it's time for us to talk about the World Series because guess what? It starts tonight. That's right. It begins tonight. Game one is going to be on our sister station, News Talk 98.5 FM. Astro launch is going to begin at 6.30. First pitch is set for 7.03. And you're going to be able to listen to Philadelphia Phillies, Houston Astros, game one of the World Series with Justin Verlander on the bump. Live on our sister station, News Talk 98.5 FM, the talk of Acadiana. Saturday's game two will be on the game, as will games three, four, and five if needed from Philadelphia Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of next week. You can hear all of those right here on the game as well. To preview the World Series is our friend from the Lima Time Time podcast, the one and only Mr. James Yasko. James, good morning to you, brother. How are you, my friend? Good. I'm, I'm actually a little bit surprised that we're that we're not going to talk about this this really massive Leeds United Liverpool matchup uh, tomorrow afternoon. I know that's what everyone's focus is on. So you must have a guest coming on later that's going to address that. Oh yeah, bud. We're going to dedicate two segments to that. Going to do breakdowns <laughs> and everything. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's talk about this matchup. You know, I don't think you can take anything from when these two teams faced off in the final series of the regular season. Both teams were resting guys. Both teams had already punched their tickets to the postseason. But let's talk about this matchup. What's the biggest danger the Phillies present the Houston Astros? I mean, Nola Nola, and Wheeler are, are two extremely good starting pitchers. Um, and the Astros had trouble hitting against one 
pretty good starting pitcher in Garrett Cole. Uh, so, you know, that, that's a concern, but also just Philly's bats, you know, they, they just bludgeoned the, the Padres to death in the NLCS, um, you know, is, is the, the run preventing Astros pitching staff going, can they, can they keep that locked down for another four to seven games? I think, you know, those are the, those are the two things to watch. It's, it's the, it's which offense is going to finally show up. Do you you know, basically pitch around Bryce Harper? What's going to be the approach for him? Because he's coming off a monster postseason, was an absolute stud against the Padres. You know, he's probably their best bat in the lineup. Do you just pitch around him, or do you, as the Astros, feel confident that you can attack Bryce Harper? I, I think it, I think what happens in game one will determine that over the rest of the series. If I, cause I, I don't think the Astros are, are used to backing down from, from anybody or, or pitching around uh, anybody. I know Verlander isn't going to want to, you know, sort of throw four balls, 25 inches off the plate um, and, and sort of give him the unintentional intentional walk. Um, so I, I think you, 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 you challenge him and, and see what happens. And then you adjust later in the series. What, what I do hope for, uh, is that is that the the six weeks that have passed since both of these teams have played I, that 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 cools off the Phillies a little bit because you you can't you can't convince me that the, that the Astros have played in the last month like this break has been has been that long. It is wildly different and, and crazy to think that the Astros have essentially only played seven games in the span of like three weeks, which is kind of <laughs> <Yeah>. crazy. <laughs> twenty three days. Yeah, you're right. It's it's it's. Seven games in 23 days. Justin Verlander was very good in his last outing. His first outing of the postseason, he wasn't. World Series has always been a thing for him. Now, some of them have come up to no decisions, right? But he was never able to get a World Series win with the Tigers. He hasn't gotten one with the Astros. For a guy that's so good, so dominant, is that any type of hurdle, does that cause any type of anxiety for him to go out there and pitch well and finally get a World Series win to help his team start off a World Series the right way? So I think with 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 Verlander, there's sort of a similar narrative that, that Clayton Kershaw has. That that Kershaw was actually a whole lot better in the playoffs and in the postseason than than people give him credit for, but the the narrative is that he chokes in the in the postseason. If you look at Justin Verlander's career in the World Series, it's it's a whole lot better than it than it sort of feels like. He had yeah he had a couple of rough of rough ones uh, in the World Series previously, but one thing that I I think contributes to that is the number of innings that Verlander pitches you know in a in a normal season, and you know we're talking about a guy that, that by the time you get to the World Series he's used to throwing 250 to 270 innings. This year is different. You know, the, the Astros <clears throat> sort of managed his workload a little bit better, I think, for this exact moment uh, where, where he's, he's a little bit more fresh. There, there isn't the wear and tear on his arm. Um, and so I, I, I fully expect him to go out and throw a, a gem tonight. You expect Verlander to go out there and throw a gem. The other thing that stands out to me about this World Series is obviously the starting pitching is very good for both teams. I think the Astros have the advantage, but I think the bullpen has just been lights out. It's been phenomenal for the Strohs. But the Phillies have a bullpen that's you know pitched fairly well in the postseason. They're starting to find themselves. 
do you think this World Series comes down to the best bullpen? I, I think that's going to be a, a factor. You know, I think we're we're in that time of year where it's it's a, everything is on such a thin margin that that the Phillies might not have a better bullpen, but if they have a better bullpen that night, then that can be that can be the difference in in the entire series. You know, but having sort of followed the National League over the course of the season, I heard all year that the Phillies bullpen was hot garbage. And I watch these games. And I'm like, what is everyone complain? Like, Philly fans are are mentally unstable if they think that this bullpen is 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 terrible. Um, but I do think that that's Rob Thompson, man. You know, managing his bullpen, just going, you know, batting a thousand when it comes to who he puts in and and where. So you know, a, a slip up there, um, you know, that that if, if that luck, we Astros fans know very well your your luck can run out in a hurry, and and you can have a bad week to have a bad week. And, and I think, you know, that that's definitely on the table. We're talking with James Yasko. He's the co-host of the Lehman Time Time podcast. He's also a contributor for the Houston Chronicle. He joins us here on RP3 and Company as we're previewing the World Series, which begins tonight. Astro launch will begin at 6.30, first pitch 7.03. You can listen to game one of the World Series on our sister station, News Talk 98.5 FM, the talk of Acadiana. Let's talk about this lineup because Altuve struggled mightily through the first two playoff series with the exception of game four in the Bronx. Alvarez, after he hit the two home runs against the Mariners, he struggled. But they got great production in those two series from Jeremy Pena, a rookie, and they got great production from Yuli Gurriel, who couldn't hit all season and all of a sudden has found his stroke in the postseason. And Alex Bregman, like Bregs was nothing but consistent. 333 in both of those series, a home run in each one of those series, a double, a draws, a walk. Is Bregman the guy that kind of stirs the drink, so to speak, for this team? And will he need to have a very good World Series for them to win? Yeah, no, if 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 Altuve and Jordan and Tucker continue to be no shows, you know, and we you know you mentioned you mentioned it, but but Altuve Altuve has looked more alive in the last couple of games and and hopefully, you know, he spent the last few days in one of those like minority report chambers where he's just getting simulation after simulation uh, of what what the strike zone looks like. Um, but if, if they continue to be no shows, then you absolutely have to rely on on Pena and Guriel and Bregman uh, and Maldonado and Chaz McCormick. And and it's if if you can get out, I think Altuve. Well, I say that Altuve is the straw that serves the drink, but but he has hasn't done much of anything, and still the Astros are seven and zero. But I, I do think, yeah, if 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 one of those guys continues, if one of your big bats continues to be absent, then you're going to have to find it somewhere else. And for as much as we talked about how the Astros lineup is extremely top heavy, you know, over the course of the regular season, that's proving to not be the case. <coughs> excuse me, so much this postseason. So. It's just a matter of, of what they've done for the last few years, that if someone goes goes cold, then someone else comes and picks them up. They have this matchup now, and both teams like to hit home runs. For me, the Astros have depended a lot on solo shots. They have struggled with runners in scoring position. They struggle on that. They've done that all season long. I like the fact, though, James, that in – Game four against the Yankees, they were able to bring guys 
home that were in scoring position, and they were they had to fight to win that game. It wasn't an easy game for them. Do you think what we saw in the last couple games with Altuve, what we saw in the last game with Alvarez, I think we're going to see the bats wake up from Altuve, Alvarez, and Tucker in this series? I think so. You know, I don't. I don't. I think the the moment is the, the moment is never too big. Um, you know, I, I I think that Al Altuve had had some trouble. You know, finding you know getting a feel for the strike zone. I don't think the home plate umpire as a whole. Uh, helped with that, you know, calling pitches that have been balls all season, you know, four or five inches off the plate, that's suddenly a strike. That's going to change your approach, and you're going to chase some pitches that that otherwise you wouldn't have chased because it's better to try to put a bat on the ball than it is to strike out looking at a at a ball. Um, I, but I, I, I don't think, you know, I think they all know it's at stake. You know, I think that, that this is their, you know, their one for three when it comes to the World Series that this is a chance to get Dusty Baker his first World Series ring in, a, in what is a first ballot, uh, first ballot Hall of Fame career. Um, I don't know that managers go on the ballot, whatever. Um, but, I, you know, I, I, think that they under, I think they understand what's at stake, that they, they, want, one, they, they want one more minimum. Uh, and, you know, last year, last year, you can just chalk that up to, to the Braves. Just, the Astros just got got by the Braves. 2019 probably stings a whole lot more, but I think this 2022 Astros team would beat the 2019 World Series uh, Astros team in in five. Like I, I just think that they've come along so much since 2019 that that this that they they know that this is one that they need to go ahead and, and take. They have all this experience, but they've never won a game one, and that's something that's always kind of eluded them. And, and it's a weird thing, even when the year they won the World Series in 2017, they still dropped a game one. You got Verlander tonight. He's your ace. He's a guy that can set the tone. How important is it for the team to actually go out there and win game one of the World Series? Yeah, no, I think I think if, if you know, 2017, you know, that was a team that, that as a whole, they had some, they had some postseason experience. Um, you know, 20... But that was also your your facing Kershaw in Los Angeles. You know that that's that's sort of a different animal. Uh, you know, 2019 was was at home. 2021 was at home, and so I, I think they know the importance of setting the table and and getting Game One. And I Verlander knows. You know, he's been around he's been around forever, um, and so I, I, yeah, they they know how important this one is. And and I, I I think I think they'll be ready. I don't know. I don't know anything. I'm terrified. I haven't slept in four days. Uh, I'm I haven't nails slept in four bleach. days. Uh, you know. <laughs> um, do you believe, take out analytics, take that part of your brain that makes you a teacher and, and all that good stuff. How do you just personally feel? Do you feel like your Strohs are going to go out there and get a World Series championship within the next week? I do. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to say Astros in five. I think that, you know, when you have a, the Phillies, everyone likes to think of them as this lunch pail team that they just put their hard hat on and come to work and, and do I think it's a 200 and something million dollar payroll. Like how, how, how this narrative became like the hard work and good old mama's boys, you know, in Philly against the big, bad, big money, Houston Astros, how that narrative took hold. I'll, I'll never understand. Um, but I, I think it's I think it's Astros in five. I think I think everyone 
the, this entire season has been about this week. And, you know, giving Verlander, putting him on the IL in, in September, you know, giving him a couple weeks off and, and adding a six-man partway through the season to give him extra time. Um, I, I think I, I, I think this is – if, if they don't, then I, I don't know that I'll ever watch another baseball game again because baseball is a, a faithless horn. <laughs> oh, James! I have. To I will need. I would need the entire offseason. I wouldn't be ready for baseball by opening day next year. If, but I. But I. I think it's Astros and five. Okay, you say Ast- Astros and five. I like that. I like that. Um, who were you waving to earlier, man? I'm in. The, you know, someone was I walking by. Quite, yeah, no, I didn't quite make it to my classroom uh, by the time this started, and so uh, I'm in the gym. And someone came in uh, to the trainer's room. So I'm just, I'm sure they're wondering, because nobody knows I do this, uh, which is fine with me. The less, the less people professionally that know that, that I, I do anything outside of school. Uh, so that was someone going to the trainer's room. You're like, you, you're like a kid in school trying to smoke cigarettes behind the cafeteria. That, that's not inaccurate, actually. <laughs> Here, I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show oh. my work. Brother, uh, tell the folks um, what, what you guys got lined up schedule-wise uh, for the pod, uh, for the podcast, for the Lima Time Time podcast. You guys doing anything special for the World Series? Yeah, we did a we did a World Series preview last night where I told I've I've been to Philadelphia twice, uh, and one of them was was like the bachelor party that I never had, uh, and so um, we we did a, a little World Series preview last night. We'll check back in on the off day on Sunday. Uh, so yeah, we. we Check the preview last night that was posted, and then and then we'll be back on Sunday, and then you know we'll kind of see what happens after that. Brother, appreciate your time as always, man. Enjoy the World Series, and hopefully, when we talk a week from today, there won't be any World Series games left because the Strohs would all have already won the championship. Next Friday would be what Game Seven or Game Six? It would be Game Six. Game Six. Uh... This is awful. This is this is just the world. You know, shout out to shout out to NFL fans. You know, the, the the people that only watch the NFL because their whole championship thing is wrapped up in like four hours, and the commercials are are cool, and and there's a massive concert like at halftime, and it's four hours in and out. You know, we're about to engage on an exhausting, horrible, depressive journey of of eight days where our our where the action is interrupted by commercials for like Viagra. Like what like this is this is the absolute worst. This is all you want, but make no mistake, this is the absolute worst thing in the world. Thank you for your time, brother. <laughs> I'm gonna go finish another bowl of nails. It's James Yasko. From the Lima Time Time Podcast, joining us here on RP3 Company, helping us preview the World Series. Once again, reminder, this is how it lines up. Game one of the World Series between the Phillies and the Astros, live from Houston, can be heard tonight on our sister station, News Talk 98.5 FM, the talk of Acadiana. Astro launch with Robert Ford, Steve Sparks, starts at 6.30. First pitch, 7.03. Then, game two, Saturday, same time. Astro launch 6.30, first pitch 7.03. You can listen to that game live right here on the game. And then you'll be able to hear games 3, 4, and 5 if needed from Philly Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday on the game as well.
That's right, because we're your home for the Houston Astros. we got to take a timeout. When we return, we'll update the poll question of the day. You know what? And if you want to get your phone calls in, give us a holler. 337-706-0111. That's 337-706-0111. You want to talk Raging Cajuns? You want to talk Houston Astros? You want to talk Jamar Chase injury? You want to talk Saints? Give us a holler. Love to hear from you. You're listening to The Game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Sign up right now for the Game Rewards Club at 1037thegame.com so you can score tickets, gift certificates, and more. This is The Game, 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's Sports Station. Be one of the first people to see Black Panther Wakanda forever? Then text the word Panther, P-A-N-T-H-E-R, once again, P-A-N-T-H-E-R, to 337-283-8100 for your chance to win a spot for two on the guest list for a private viewing of Black Panther Wakanda forever at the Celebrity Theaters in Broussard on November 10th. Once again, text Panther to 337-283-8100 to win tickets for Black Panther Wakanda Forever, brought to you by The Game, Celebrity Theaters, and Sherman Insurance. Poll question of the day is inspired by the Louisiana Raging Cajuns. Once again, that's why we're on the road. Special road trip edition of RP3 and Company as we're broadcasting live from Hattiesburg, Mississippi because we were here for the Raging Cajuns game against the Golden Eagles of Southern Miss. Cajuns fall short, 39-24, and now they drop to 4-4 four and four overall on the season. And they only have four games left. Division title, not going to happen. Conference championship, not going to happen. But the defending conference champs are in danger of maybe not making it to a bowl game. The Sun Belt, though, is wide open. So even though on the schedule it looks like Troy may be the better team or Georgia Southern's a coin flip game or Texas State could be a winnable game, you really don't know because it's been so bizarre. Adding the, the new teams into the conference has just kind of thrown a monkey wrench into everything where a really good team will lose to a bad team one week and then turn around and beat a fellow good team the next week. Can't really make heads or tails of what's going on in the Sunbelt Conference. But there's only so many bowl spots available. So with four games left and sitting at four wins, do you believe the Raging Cajuns are going to go bowling? Yes or no? Or maybe. We gave you three options because that's what producer extraordinaire Miss Hannah Five Names does. She loves giving you options. And the producer extraordinaire is going to give us the update here on the poll question of the day. How are the people voting, Hannah? Good morning, by the way. And what are some comments? <coughs> Sorry. I'm going to up over here. <laughs> You're, so. Let's try that again. Let's try that again. <laughs> hey, producer extraordinaire, Miss Hannah Five Names. 
Can you give us the update on the poll question of the day and give us some comments? So our poll question of the day is, will the Raging Cajuns make it to the bowl game this year? We have yes, no, maybe 40% equal votes for no and maybe. Only 20% chance for yes. I mean, it, yesterday's game made me frustrated, so I may be with the, the no and the maybe people. But... So, John Paul Cajun Daddy says they will need to win the next three conference games. Seven and five, yes. Six and six, don't think so. But if one of their six wins is Florida State, then maybe so. Find the amount of power five teams that are bowl eligible if the final control, controlling factor UL brings numbers in the bowls like that. Then Salty Steve, actually, sorry, it's quoting Salty Steve. But it's from Tom that says, since Salty Steve is no Saul, I'll bring it. No, Cajuns have looked lost and unmotivated most of the year. It falls on coaching to motivate and inspire. They haven't played that way. I hope Coach Des proves me wrong, but so far it seems the lights are too bright for him. Some of it's, you know, I don't know how to tackle. I don't, I look, I don't, look, I don't agree with that. First of all, I think it's too early to pass judgment on Coach Des. This team, and we were talking about it in the bowels of the stadium, waiting on players to come and talk to us. If anyone thought that this team was going to be like a 10-win team, they were crazy. There just wasn't – that wasn't going to happen. You lost a four-year starter at quarterback. You lost four of your five starting offensive linemen. One of them is starting in the NFL right now for one of the better teams in the AFC for the New York Jets. The Another one is starting at the University of Florida. One of your running backs is starting at the University of Florida. You lost guys. Like, they weren't going to be a 12, 11, even 10-win team this year. Now, is it disappointing that they lost to Southern Miss? Yes. It's probably more disappointing that they lost to ULM. That's a game they should have won. But this is the first year, and remember – Billy had struggles too year one. I, I to think that this team was just going to be able just to keep it moving. Group of five schools always have lulls. They just do. They just do. Sorry, continue five names. You're fine. I mean, I mean, it's honestly, you can't pass age judgment on Coach Des because I don't think any of what happened last night was really on Coach Des a whole lot. I think. The way he was trying to call plays was well. I think the defense kind of slacked a little bit by not knowing how to tackle people. When you have four guys running at the same person and that same guy can run the you know 30-something yards to get a touchdown for another miss and you can't tackle him, something's wrong there. So I think I'm not sure if fatigue really played a factor, but I think that short turnaround kind of got him jumbled up a little bit. But as Coach but says – I don't- but I'm not going to use fatigue as as an excuse because Southern Miss played a game on Saturday too, right? So that can't be used. I also think we're not giving enough credit to Will Hall, the head coach of Southern Miss. He's in year two. They had struggles last year. They've made massive improvements from year one to year two. And don't forget this. Will Hall was offensive coordinator and quarterback coach for the Raging Cajuns. And he also was offensive coordinator for Tulane. You know the one loss Tulane has on their season as ranked as a top 25 team? 
uh, they lost to Southern Miss. So we, we got to give some credit here to, to Southern Miss and to the job Will Hall's doing in year number two. You have to be patient. That's the whole thing. But I'm not going to use the turnaround as an excuse. I don't think that should be used as an excuse. They just did not know how to deal with the Wildcat quarterback, and they struggled with pass protection. And the defense gave up some big plays. And that was the difference in the ballgame. we got to take a timeout. Keep voting on the poll question of the day. Keep leaving your comments. The producer extraordinary, Miss Hannah, five names, will be more than happy to share those with us over the air throughout the rest of today's show. If you want to get your phone calls in, now's the time to do so. 337-706-0111. That's the hotline. Once again, 337-706-0111. You're listening to RP3 and Company Road Trip Edition from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, right here on the game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home, for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Let your voice be heard. Hello. Give us a call on the hotline at 337-706-0111 and speak your mind. Yellow. This is the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Uh, here in Louisiana, there are thousands of miles of utility lines and gas pipelines buried just beneath the surface. And sometimes multiple lines are in one area. So look, if you or your contractor that you've hired is digging a hole to put in a brand new fence, it can be privacy, it can be chain link, it really doesn't matter. Pool, gazebo, it could be just flower beds. It really doesn't matter. Minor landscaping around your house does not matter because you run the risk of hitting an underground line by digging only a few inches. So what happens then? Maybe you only knock the power out for your entire neighborhood, but sometimes there's an explosion with injuries and even death. It happens every single year, and there's a very simple way to avoid it. Before you dig, call 811. Call 811 two days before you dig. Tell the operator your address, and someone's going to come out there and mark the location of buried lines so you or your contractor can avoid them. It's simple. It's free of charge, and guess what? It's the law. Louisiana 811 operates 811 as a public service. And to promote public safety, Louisiana 811 and the game, 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, wants to remind you, call 811 and know what's below before you dig. Welcome back to RP3 and Company Road Trip Edition, live from Hattiesburg, Mississippi, as we were here for last night's Louisiana Raging Cajuns Southern Miss Golden Eagles football game. Cajuns end up falling short. 39-24 to 24 as they fall to 4-4 four and four on the season. Four games left for the Cajuns. Can they get to a bowl game this year? Can they make it back to a bowl game? Got to get to six wins to be bowl eligible. And the crazy thing is, is that when you look at the Sun Belt Conference, there isn't a dominant team. Coastal Carolina is losing to bad teams in the conference. It's all just muddled. So it's hard to predict can the Cajuns get to six wins with only four games left? Once again, Troy a week from Saturday. Then a quick turnaround for Georgia Southern on a Thursday night. Then on the road at Florida State, non-conference game. That's a money game where they'll be receiving a nice paycheck. And then their regular season finale is on the road in San Marcos, Texas, taking on the Texas State Bobcats. So go vote on our poll question of the day and leave your comments on Facebook and Twitter. Right now, though, it's time for us to head out to the hotline and welcome on 
His students call him Mr. Green. We call him Jamie. Good morning, brother. How are you? Oh, good morning, Mr. Third. I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing over in the far east of Hattiesburg, Mississippi? Far, the far east of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. First of all, I love that. You know, I'm hanging out with the maniac, Kevin Foote. So, you know, anytime you get to do that, it's a, it's a good day, brother. I can imagine that's like a heck of a fun road trip. Like, unless the Astros or the Saints are losing, in which case, maybe not so much. But that would just have to be fun to be able to hang out and be in the car and just talk sports with them. <laughs> it's, it's, but the key is, the key is, uh, Jamie, for future reference, the key is to make sure to do that when they're not playing. So, thankfully, we'll get on the road after his show today, and we'll be back in Acadiana well before first pitch tonight for Game 1 of the World Series. <laughs> well, as long as you have it in hand, you know, as long as you can plan ahead, you should be in good shape, I guess. Um, I wanted to go in on the poll question, and uh, I wanted to say uh, I, I'm going to go with maybe. I disagree with Ton. I think that uh, – Coach Dez just hasn't had enough time to get his feet under him. And, you know, we all knew it was going to be a rebuilding season, right? I mean, you lose your head coach, you lose a bunch of guys, whether it's the draft or the other teams, you know. And uh, I, I had a feeling it was going to be about finding themselves this year. So I, I say, you know, maybe they make a bowl game. If not, good, whatever, just start planning ahead and try to work towards next year. Um, you know, get that fire back. Because I will agree with Ton on this. I haven't seen the fire this year that I've seen in previous years. And whether that's from coaching or whether that's just from players or whatever, I just haven't seen that fire. And I'd like to see that fire again, bring that, uh, bring that program back up into prominence. Jamie, appreciate your phone call, brother. Enjoy your day and enjoy your weekend. Appreciate it. Y'all have a good one. Look, I- I'll say to that point, Look, you also had this team the last couple of years, a group of guys that had came in together, had been recruited together, and stuck together and took advantage of the extra years of eligibility granted to them by the NCAA due to the COVID-19 pandemic. So you lost four starting offensive linemen from last year's team. You lost a four-year starting quarterback and unquestioned leader of this team. You lost your head coach. You lost several other coaches. You know, the, the run kind of came to a head, so to speak, last season. Even if Billy was still here and they still had Osiris Torrance and he wasn't starting at the University of Florida and they still had Montreal Johnson and he wasn't starting at the University of Florida, this team would still be struggling with some things. It just would be. Would their record be better? I think so. Probably they'd be a five-win five or six-win team. But they wouldn't be what they have been. And, and don't forget, during this run, we, we have kind of selective memory here. During the run under Billy, they won a lot of close games, didn't they? They didn't dominate opponents. They won a lot of close games because they had one of the best special teams units in the country, not in the conference, in the country. They had a great defense, veteran leadership on the offensive line, and at the quarterback position. And they had that for a couple years. So even with all of that, even with all that talent of guys coaching elsewhere and guys playing in the SEC and guys playing right now starting in the NFL, 
don't forget, not only is Max Mitchell starting for the New York Jets, you also have Percy Butler playing for the Washington Commanders making plays. So guys are in the NFL. Guys are at Florida. They have all this veteran leadership the last couple of years because of the COVID-19 pandemic and granted the extra year of eligibility. And they still, still won a slew of close games. They didn't dominate people. So we need to, you know, make sure to, to remember Kevin's talked about this numerous times that this team last year could have easily lost three games or four, including that game at South Alabama last year. So, look, I, I get it. You want them to be better. All Cajun fans want them to be better. Don't disagree with that whatsoever. They expect that. And I can tell you, talking to Coach Des and talking to Chris Moncrief and Zion Hill Green afterwards in, in, in the locker room, they're emotional. They're fired up. They want to win. They know they got to get better. It's not for a lack of trying, I can tell you that. Let's head back out to the hotline. Welcome on Martin to the show. Martin, good morning to you, brother. How are you today, my friend? Oh, I'm doing fabulous considering tonight. We finally uh, don't have to wait no longer. Uh, the Astros, their World Series run on the way. And uh, even though I know he's not listening this morning because he's a, he's a bad loser, Oh, it's Friday, and the Yankees still ain't in the World Series. <laughs> nah. Uh, why you got to do Paul like that, Martin? On, um, Martin, you know why you got to do? Why, why you got to do your guy Paul like that? Oh, because uh, I know if, if it was the other way around, we wouldn't be here in the end of it. Either. I mean, he'd probably be calling y'all show eight times a, a, a day, you know, saying, "Oh, I told you so. I told you so." But Paul. Oh, it, it's pretty bad when a down Red Sox fan got to tell you, I told you so, Paul. <laughs> but uh, I want to kind of chime in on the, the Rage Cajuns. Look, okay, so uh, this is year one of uh, Coach Dez. I think the Rage Cajuns did an excellent job when they when they hired him as head coach. I mean, the man learned on the Billy Napier. I mean, you can't catch fire overnight. you got to give the man his time now. If it's three or four years from now and we're still revisiting this situation, then maybe you can talk. But as far as saying that the lights are too bright for the man and all this kind of stuff, I mean, give the man his time. I think he's going to do great in Lafayette. Uh, but uh, one team that the lights are, uh, are, are, are too bright every year for, that's the Yankees. I ain't going to agree with that. And uh, can we maybe blame this on maybe the roof being open uh uh, can we blame the Rage of Kings and losses on that? I mean, can we do that or no? No, Martin, and thank you for your phone call. Enjoy your weekend, yes, Vice sir. Chancellor of ERAF. <laughs> thank you, bud. The man cannot stop throwing shade at his friend Paul. He just can't do it. He just can't stop doing it. Man says, Ooh, ooh, I'm going to stab you a little bit more. <laughs> it is Halloween. It is Halloween. But no, look. The Cajuns are disappointed. Coach Dez is disappointed, and those guys are. And you have to give a coach time. We, we, we have such a knee-jerk reaction to things. Remember earlier this season, people wanted to get rid of Brian Kelly, right? And then he put together a couple of good wins, right? It takes time. It takes time to establish yourself and the losses that they had to the coaching staff. Four offensive linemen, two running backs, four-year starting quarterback, guys on the defensive side of the football. 
it was going to be an adjustment. It was going to be a transition year, no matter what. Got to be patient. Got to be patient. These things don't happen overnight. Remember Billy Napier's first team? They were barely above 500 ball club, and they lost their bowl game and did so in kind of humbling fashion to Tulane. No one would have thought that first year under Napier that that team would have gone on and had all the double-digit win regular seasons, conference championships, and everything like that. No one could have expected that. No one even thought that was a reality of the level that the program was able to achieve the next few years. So not saying that's going to happen again. I'm just saying you got to be patient and you got to let things kind of play out here. You just do. Appreciate those phone calls. We got to take a time out here in RP3 and Company. When we come back, we're going to talk a little McNeese Cowboys football. Look, tough loss last week on the road against Nichols. They need to try to get back on track, get to win number two. First year head coach Gary Golf. We're going to hear from him as they prepare for homecoming this Saturday against Southeastern Louisiana. That'll be next right here on RP3 and Company. You're listening to the game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and you're home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Uh, the Karen Crow Cultural District is hosting Crow Fest downtown Karen Crow Fall Festival this Saturday. That's tomorrow from 6 to 8 o'clock. And here's the deal. Families are invited to enjoy a safe trick-or-treating atmosphere along St. Peter Street. Kind of old-fashioned, traditional trick-or-treating atmosphere because the street's going to be closed to vehicle traffic during the event. There are also going to be games, a haunted house, a petting zoo, a costume contest for the kiddos, and even a pumpkin carving contest. It's family fun. Once again, Crow Fest, downtown Karen Crow Fall Festival. Tomorrow, downtown Karen Crow from 6 to 8 o'clock. It should be a great time. Also going on tomorrow night will be the McNeese Cowboys. Homecoming for them. They come back home after a gut-punching loss to the Nichols Colonels, a game they should have won but were unable to hold on to win. And now they take on the Southeastern Louisiana Lions as Gary Goff is looking for win number one in Southland Conference play. And look, they got really close to beating Nichols. They have had to deal with some injuries. They've also had to deal with adding 50 new players to this team. This is a full rebuild, right? This is not a transition season. This is a rebuilding season in every sense of the word. And Gary Goff says he feels like this team is close to kind of being a good ball club. Yeah, I mean, I do, I do feel we're close. Um, you know, I've been saying it all year, though. Right. You know, it just really comes down to uh, us, us playing four full quarters um, and playing clean football. And whether it's youth, inexperience, whatever the excuse is, at this point in the season, you've got enough experience behind your belt where you can't make the same mistakes. Um, you know, so we, we um, minus three plays last weekend, we played a pretty good ball game and, and had an opportunity to win. But those three plays cost us, uh, you know, and, and, you know, playing a great team like this, you can't give them extra opportunities. Um, because a great football team is going to, you know, take advantage of your mistakes. So we, we got to make sure we protect the football and, uh, and and get some long, sustained drives, keep our defense off the field some, and keep, more importantly, keep their high-powered offense off the field. High-powered offense off the field. And, look, it's going to be all hands on deck. Yeah, they've had some injuries. Yeah, they have a lot of inexperienced players that are being forced into uh, duty. But Goff said, guess what? Everyone is dressing out for this weekend for homecoming. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, we're, we're pretty much dressing everybody this weekend uh, and from here on out because, you know, we, we have an ability to have some freshmen play and then still uh, keep their year of eligibility. So it, it'll be fun to get out there and see some of these guys get some action um, and, and see what they can do. You know, uh, those guys work pretty hard all year long. Uh, a lot of them have been on, on scout team. Uh, a few of them have been moved up by necessity. Uh, they, they've had to play the last several weeks, but um, there are also a lot of young guys are excited you know, because they're getting out there, they're in the game plan zone. Once again, McNeese looking to get win number two on the season and get their first Southland Conference win. They'll try to do that tomorrow night in the hole as they welcome in southeastern Louisiana. Kickoff set for 7 o'clock. That's going to do it for hour number two. Hour number three jam-packed with back-to-back-to-back guests. First up, Carrie Maggard, wife of Dr. Brian Maggard, the man in charge of UL Athletics. She's also a breast cancer survivor, is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. We're going to talk about her journey. That's coming up next right here on The Game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is the producer extraordinaire, Hannah Five Names, and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. The final hour of RP3 and Company Road Trip Edition has arrived. Coming up a half hour from right now as we're broadcasting from Hattiesburg, Mississippi. We're going to talk all things New Orleans Saints football. Big Easy Blitz half an hour from right now. And about 20 minutes from right now, we're going to be talking with our fantasy football expert, Zach Miller. Who to sit, who to start. That's all coming up here in the final hour of today's show. Also, don't forget, vote on the poll question of the day. Leave your comments on Facebook and Twitter. But right now, it's time for us to talk with one of our favorite guests. Some people know her as the wife of Dr. Brian Maggard, the man in charge of Raging Cajun Athletics. We know her as an advocate for early testing and a breast cancer survivor. October is wrapping up, and of course, it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And joining us to talk about her journey, to share her story with all of us, is Carrie Maggard. Mrs. Maggard, good morning to you. How are you today? Good morning, Raymond. Thank you so much for for, uh, allowing me to to talk with you today. I'm thrilled thrilled to be on with you. Appreciate you making the time, Mrs. Maggard. And let's take a moment here to go back four years ago when you first received the diagnosis that you, in fact, had breast cancer, what was kind of going through your mind, and how did you tell your loved ones, your husband and your children, about the diagnosis? I've likened it to just being um, punched in the stomach or struck by lightning. You know, there is no family history of breast cancer um, in my family, and in fact, rarely um, any cancer. Now, since my diagnosis, my diagnosis, one of my siblings has, has been diagnosed with a different kind of cancer. But um, prior to, to us, really, we had to go way, way back to um, cousins down the line that, that maybe one or two had, had experienced something. But, um, you know, you, you just, when, there, when it's not on your radar, um, and again, 85% of breast cancer diagnosis are made on women with 
men or women, um, with no family history. So, you know, that was not a statistic that I was too familiar with, um, and therefore it just wasn't on my mind. So uh, really came out of the blue. You know, quickly I'll tell you, I had um, been to a checkup. Um, I had had my annual mammogram and um, was awaiting, awaiting results of that mammogram. When I happened to see, it was the month of October. Um, so, you know, it, it, October means a lot to me because of the breast cancer awareness um, of October. It was on my mind, and I had had a mammogram, but, but um, I had a friend that posted on, on Facebook, I believe, four years ago, who was a, was a surviving um, breast cancer um, woman, and she, she said, on her Facebook post, make sure that you receive a 3D or a three-dimensional mammogram. Well, I had had my mammogram just a few days before, and, and I didn't know. You know, that was a term that I, I didn't know to ask when I went in. So I actually called, asked, asked the, uh, the radiologist, secretary, you know, what type I had had, and they did not have the technology at that time um, for a 3D mammogram, which is much more detailed. Um, there's a lot of lot of science here, but I'll, I'll just throw out this term. Uh, almost half of, of women have what, what's considered breast um, uh, dense breast tissue, and it has nothing to do with size. It has nothing to do with weight or fitness level. Um, it's just like I have blonde hair. Um, you know, someone may have red hair. You're just born with it, um, but it makes it very, very difficult for a two-dimensional mammograph to mammogram to pick up um, breast cancer. So I called. I, I was told I did not have a 3D. A um, couple weeks later, I actually, you know, was doing a self-breast exam and found a lump. And so went to my uh, gynecologist again. And again, I had just seen her about six weeks prior, but because I had, had found something, she was um, very wise and brought me back in. And um, so that led to the diagnosis just about a week later. And uh, that started our journey. How did that conversation go with your family once you found out the diagnosis? You know, I, I just popped in. I, I thought that I was just going in to, um, to have another follow-up mammogram um, to rule out anything that was wrong. So Brian was not with me that day. We actually had soccer, um, soccer girls coming over here that night for dinner. So it was, a, it was a whirlwind of a day. He was at work. I got a phone call that they could slip me in if I could be there at, at um, you know, say, 1 o'clock. I can't remember. It was early afternoon. So I, I um, zipped over there, and I ended up being in that um, radiologist's office about four hours. Um, had mammogram, had an ultrasound, and then um, went through a biopsy all in that day. So it was um, it was hard because I was texting Brian. Um, you know, it's just it's it's one of those things that it just it just happens, and you you just your head is spinning the whole time. Um, we then gathered the facts and, and met with our oncologist, our surgeon, had a plan for a surgery date before we called the kids. So it was maybe maybe a week later. Um, and, you know, our kids live, live um, not in the area. So it was all done on FaceTime um, individually. And it was, it was three tough conversations. 
um, and they all they all handled it. They all reacted differently. I think they all um, processed it differently. Um, so it, it's hard because of the distance. It's hard any time, but it was especially hard for us because of the distance and and not being not being there and and um, you know they were not not here um, during the diagnosis or the surgery. Um, but they did, you know, we were able to see them over the holidays, which was, was a couple months after, after surgery. We always think of cancer and dealing with it and treating with it as a physical thing, but there's the mental health portion of that as well, where you're dealing with anxiety and depression and getting kind of trapped in your own head, so to speak, thinking about all the what if scenarios. How did you stay positive and kind of keep your head up and not let yourself be overwhelmed by the diagnosis? Ooh, you hit the nail on the head right there. That is so true. So true. And that was something that, um, you know, initially you're, you're just you're just kind of trying to process. Um, but the mental struggle and the fear, the deep, deep, deep fears, um, they kind of set in a little bit later. You're, you're just kind of gasping for air at the beginning. But, um, you know, it was, a, it was a process, and I'll be very honest with you. I had a lot of people that, um, that reached out to me um, or that, that, that I ultimately reached out to for help because I really struggled with the fear, the fear of the diagnosis, um, the, you know, the staging, was it correct? And how could they, how could they really know? And, and breast cancer has, you know, it, it can reoccur. So it's not one of those cancers that they can, they can treat um, and tell you 100% it's not coming back. Um, so there's, there's still that fear. And, you know, and I'm, I'm four years out, and um, I know I'm still doing um, scans every six months. And um, the, the further out we get, you know, the better the better it is in between. But um, I'll tell you what, even even to this day, when when I get within a week or two of, of um, my scans, uh, I can I can feel the the uh, the tension build and um, you know just the just kind of a kind of a um, memory of of what this all led to so just driving into the parking lot of the um of the offices um is a little bit um a little bit tense still because it just brings back um brings back lots of memories but um i had you know what i can tell you is when you walk in someone's footsteps you understand um at a different level than if you walk beside them so I had some dear dear women some I knew some I didn't know they were just uh, just acquaintances or they heard about my situation uh, that reached out to me early on from the get-go and um, I'll tell you what those are the people that you you just cling to for knowledge and wisdom and hope um, because those are those are survivors that have been through it and um, they know what you're going through. We're talking with Carrie Maggard, breast cancer survivor. She's also the wife of Dr. Brian Maggard, the man in charge of Louisiana Raging Cajun Athletics. She joins us here on RP3 and Company. Either by coincidence or by fate, while you get your diagnosis, the football team 
gets an invitation to go play in a bowl game, a bowl game where the sponsor is all about breast cancer awareness. What was that process like for you? Yeah, isn't that crazy? You know, sometimes you think, okay, okay, God is clearly, clearly wanting to send a message and clearly wanting to use um, an experience that you have to reach others. So there was no hiding in a closet, Raymond. Um, You know, the... The bowl invitation came, I think I had surgery on like November 8th, and the bowl invitation was about a month later. So it was um, it was a lot. It was a lot to process um, because I, I did have uh, 20 rounds of radiation that was then um, scheduled for the month of January. So the bowl was right in between my surgery and the radiation, lots of emotions. Um, you know, Denise uh, Jaluk was, was part of that trip, and, and she had been through a really, really, really rough um, breast cancer journey. Um, so she was of great help to me, but um, it, it, it was very, it was surreal because I was still very emotional Um with with the diagnosis, um, we did have our son and daughter were able one of one of our daughters and our son were able to be at the Cure Bowl with us, which was wonderful. Um, and you know they had the breast cancer survivors at halftime on the field, and you just it it was like it was my body, but why was I there? You know, why, why was I on the field surrounded by other people? Because you just don't feel like you fit at that, at that early stage. And you're, you're not wanting to fit honestly. Um, so it was a lot to take in, you know, looking back, I, I still think, you know, I hope some, some awareness came of, of my situation, of our situation, because Brian and I really felt like we were put in that cure bowl um, with a message and with a story. So I, I look back and I think I hope I hope that our story was was able to maybe maybe um, you know cause someone to schedule an overdue mammogram or or, or, or get a checkup. Um, but it was a lot. It was a lot, and there were a lot of a lot of tears shed that week. Um, so it was it was very interesting timing. <laughs> And the thing is, when I talk to survivors, they always kind of leave me with this. They're like, if I share my story and it impacts only one person's life and that person can do something and get that mammogram done, then I'm doing my job, right? And and it almost feels like there is a bond between other survivors. Can you kind of speak on that as we wrap up our conversation, Mrs. Magger? Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, breast cancer, as in all cancers, but I'll speak of my knowledge of breast cancer. Early detection is key, and early detection saves lives. So when when you catch um, breast cancer in in the early stages, so I was a stage one, um, and you go from a stage zero to a stage four, and and it gets progressively um, progressively harder to fight. Um, the um, the treatment gets progressively harder uh, once it, it is determined that it is not a contained tumor, meaning it has gone into your lymph nodes um, and beyond in some cases. Those, those statistics for reoccurrence and for survival 
um, go down. So, yes, you're exactly right. If, if, if my message is early detection, so my message to, to all women is don't, don't miss the yearly checkups. But on top of that, be your own health advocate uh, because no one knows your body better than yourself. So even though I had had a, a doctor uh, physically check, um, you know, for, for any abnormalities, I had had a mammogram. Then subsequently, I, I didn't really finish the story, my initial mammogram actually came back clear. So there, there's my there's my um, there's my story about three dimensional mammograms. You know, um, so ask your ask your doctor, hey, what kind of breast tissue do I have? Do I have dense breast tissue? And if I do, what are my um, what are my um, testing measures that I can pursue? You know, what does my insurance then cover a three dimensional? Does does it cover um, an ultrasound. Um, so educate yourself and and just listen to your body and and you know um, again early detection I just just believe is key and um, just so important for people to to really really learn and know about. Mrs. Maggard, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you where can people go locally to help out with breast cancer awareness with research or donations. Uh, you know, locally, I have had um, I have had experiences with Miles Perrett and Oncologics, and those two local or- organizations not only support um, those who are going through cancer, um, and not specific to breast cancer, but all types of cancers. But they they do some wonderful, wonderful outreach. For families and, and individuals who are going going through a cancer diagnosis or have been through a cancer diagnosis, and then you know the Breast Cancer Foundation that that I um, one of them that that I would just highlight is Breast Cancer Research Fund. Um, they do a lot of obviously funding for research, which is very important. Um, you know, and and again, research has come so far, and it's it's probably probably even change from four years ago um, in how they how they um, deliver radiation or chemo um, but research is going to be the key to to ending this disease thank you so much for your time mrs maggard enjoy your weekend and enjoy the upcoming holidays of thanksgiving christmas and new year's thank you so much hey send you Raymond. thank you we got to take a quick time out, but coming up here on RP3 and Company, Zach Miller, fantasy football expert, will join us to help you set your lineup for the weekend. That's coming up next right here on The Game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. RP3 came to the station this morning to do only two things. Kick some ass and drink some beer. Looks like we're almost out of beer. Well, it's kind of early for the latter, isn't it? Maybe. Probably. Maybe just a root beer. Or some flavored water. Back to more kick-ass sports talk with RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Oh, the game clubhouse at 1037thegame.com or 1041thegame.com is going to help you out 
with your date night blues. Listen up, fellas. Look, you're spending a lot of money these days, right? Halloween candy. you got to buy all that for the kids. Costumes. Then it's going to be Thanksgiving. Then it's going to be Christmas, right? That's a lot of money that you're having to spend this time of year. Not to mention gas prices, always an issue. We want to help you out. That way you can still make sure to take care of your lady and show her a good time. you got to go sign up for our rewards club, though. That's at 1037thegame.com or 1041thegame.com. It's free. It's easy to sign up. You're not going to get spammed or anything as well. And once you become a member, you're going to have the opportunity to score excellent prizes, like a $150 gift certificate to Mr. Lester Steakhouse, a $50 gift certificate to Half Shell Oyster House, or a $25 gift certificate to Mabel's Kitchen. All of those are available, not to mention other great prizes like Astros tickets and more throughout the year. But you can only win them by becoming a member of our clubhouse at 1037thegame.com or 1041thegame.com. It's free. It's simple. Go sign up today. Don't forget to vote on our poll question of the day. We asked you with last night's loss, the Louisiana Raging Cajuns fall to 4-4. Four and four. They only have four games left. Will they make it back to a bowl game this year? 50% of you say no. You do not believe that the Cajuns will go bowling this year. 35% of you are on the fence. You say maybe. And 15% of you say yes, they will. You're still optimistic that the Cajuns can get two more wins in their last final four regular season games. Keep those votes coming. Keep those comments coming on Facebook and Twitter as well. But right now it's time for us to help you out with your fantasy football lineup as our fantasy football expert, Mr. Zach Miller, joins us. Zach, good morning to you, brother. Hey, man, it must be feeling good. You got that big win over the weekend, right? Uh, you had to go there, didn't you? <laughs> but I know you're killing it in your other leagues, but for whatever reason in the RP3 and Company League, it is the struggle bus, and it is broken down on the side of the road and has been all season long. I tell you what, you asked a couple weeks ago if I was ready to hit the panic button. I'm ready to hit the self-destruct button. <laughs> well, I mean, look, I tried to help, but I tried. Alave didn't put him in. Us. <laughs> I told you to bench all of your players. <laughs> oh man, he said you, you you didn't try. You didn't try hard at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> look. There, there is some panic going on with some fantasy owners these days oh, because of yeah. the Jamar Chase situation. It got announced last night that he's going to be out, I do believe, anywhere between three to five weeks. They're possibly going to be placing him on injured reserve with, uh, I want to say it is a knee issue. Um, so he could hip. be out. I'm sorry, it's a hip issue. Thank you. Thank you, five names. So a hip issue, and then he's going to have to come back from that People that have Jamar Chase in their, on their fantasy football teams, uh, what can they do here, Zach? Is there someone out there they can maybe pick up to get some value? Obviously, you're not going to replace Chase's production, but what do you do if you have Jamar Chase on your fantasy football team? Yeah, I tell you what, um, just going out and grabbing wide receivers off the waiver wire and sticking them in your lineup is usually not an option. Um, but if you're Lee, if you're fortunate enough to have somebody like Marquise Goodwin who's available, which he's still available in a lot of leagues, he's going to benefit from the fact that DK uh, is injured right now. And um, Lockett is also nursing a bit of an injury. He had a big game last week at four catches, 67 yards, two touchdowns. His role might, his targets are certainly going to expand with DK being on the shelf. So 
uh, if you're desperate, uh, he may be available in your league. And obviously, if there was another wide receiver who, uh, like an Allen Robinson or a DJ Moore, who you drafted early on in the season, but because they were playing so horrible, you just stuck them on your bench. Maybe time to dust those guys off because they, believe it or not, they look like they might be playable here uh, as we round the stretch. What about Burrow owners? It was a slow start to the season. They started kind of finding themselves, and now Chase is out of there, his favorite weapon. If you have Joe Burrow on your fantasy football team, uh, any worry right now? I, I wouldn't say so. They still have two very dynamic receivers. You have a more than competent tight end in Hayden Hurst. Um, and you have Joe Mixon, who's who's still healthy. So, no, they still have plenty of playmakers there that he'll be able to keep keep the offense rolling. I, I don't suspect there'll be any uh, impact to him whatsoever fantasy-wise. So good recommendations there for those who have Jamar Chase. Guys, that if you can still grab them, do so to help with your fantasy football team and no worries with Joe Burrow. Let's talk about some quarterbacks that a lot of folks drafted very high in the first two rounds, three rounds of their fantasy football drafts. Back in August and early September, Zach, and that was Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers and Russell Wilson, and all three of them are having kind of dreadful seasons. Their offenses look anemic. Is it time for those fantasy owners to bench those guys as their starting quarterbacks in their lineups? Yeah, so that I wouldn't say you're just going to bench them indefinitely for the rest of the season. It's going to – you're certainly not just going to start them every week like you were hoping to. Uh, it's going to be matchup based. It's like so this week, for instance, I, I'm not going to start Aaron Rodgers against that Buffalo defense if I have any choices. There's probably going to be plenty of opportunities for garbage time, but with Alan Lazard banged up and just the inefficiency of the other wide receivers, uh, I, I wouldn't start him this week at all against that horrible matchup. But this week, unless you want to go grab somebody like Taylor Hinky off of, you know, the waivers and cross your fingers and hope for the best. Uh, you, you might want to roll with Russell this weekend. Uh, he doesn't have oh. a terrible matchup against Jacksonville. So this may be one of those weeks where he can at least uh, be startable for you and give you a, a decent return. What if he's terrible again this weekend, though, Zach? What do you do with Russell wow. Wilson? <laughs> because yeah, you, because might just have you to keep grab being somebody like David Mills or uh, Taylor Hinkie uh, and just hope for the best for the rest of the season. Because uh, uh, if, if he can't do anything against this Jacksonville defense, then you're, you're right. There's no hope. Yeah, because it's it, it's looking bleak. All right, bud. Let's wrap it up with this. We're talking with Zach Miller, uh, RP3 and Company fantasy football expert. You know. Obviously, some quarterbacks have underperformed, and we've had some injuries to wide receivers in the last couple of weeks with Jamar Chase and D.K. Metcalf and Saints fans and fantasy owners of Michael Thomas and Jarvis Landry are still just sitting on their hands going, hey, are they ever going to play? Well, give us some right. under-the-radar guys that you should go pick up. You already mentioned Goodwin as a wide receiver, but what are some guys that are maybe under the radar that are not performing at a great level but definitely could help your team especially if you got players on the bye this weekend. Yeah, so, well, somebody like the Deontay Foreman or even the Chuba Hubbard, both of those guys are going to start eating now that Christian McCaffrey has been traded. Um, so both of those guys put up decent, better than decent uh, numbers last week as well, and I, I expect that to be the case moving forward. They're going to be volume-based plays if you're fortunate enough to be able to grab one uh, of those guys. Also, somebody like a Josh Reynolds, uh, who started off the year well, um, had a very poor week last week, but now with Amon Ross St. Brown uh, being out again, 
Josh Reynolds is somebody who you can definitely uh, stick in your lineup and uh, get at least some a, a good target share this week against the Miami Dolphins secondary that has not been up to par. Brother, always appreciate your insight and everything that you do to help us out here with the fantasy football. And you do so in spite of struggling mightily in our own league. That shows you the kind of kind of character you possess, my friend. Thank you for that, bud. <laughs> this week's my week, Ray. I feel it. I feel it. Are you playing me? Because it may be your no. week. <laughs> Brother, enjoy your you know, weekend. Funny enough, I think I've been favored in every matchup this year. Um, just uh, they haven't played up to potential. But this this week, I feel it. This week's my week. There it is, buddy. It's going to be your week. Appreciate your time, bud. We'll talk to you next Friday. We got to take a time out here on RP3 and Company. When we come back, Big Easy Blitz, Fletcher Mackle from WDSU. Going to preview Saints Raiders. That's next right here on the game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Houdan is ready for Saints talk. They give to Camara, breaks through, spins at the two, into the end zone, touchdown! Time to talk Saints with the Big Easy Blitz here on RP3 and Company. Fletcher Mackel from WDSU now joins us here in RP3 and Company for the Big Easy Blitz. Fletcher, good morning. Um, what do we make? What do you make of this Saints team being two and five, defense struggling mightily, guys looking a little disinterested on that side of the football? Offensively, they're missing a lot of playmakers. They're committing a slew of turnovers, but they are scoring enough points to win games. And yet, at two and five. They still have a chance to win this division because the NFC South is hot garbage. Um, yeah, everything you said. I, I hate to steal <laughs> Patrick Swayze's line from the movie Ghost, but wasn't his line like Ditto or something like that? I mean, you you kind of nailed it. I mean, but but that book in in that garbage that you see, and I shouldn't call the Saints garbage, but in the mess that we see right now. There is and or was at one time a good football team. Like, there's still a lot of good in that locker room that I think they could actually claw to 9-8 and eight and win this division. But the way they played, I could certainly see them finishing 5-12 and 12 this year. And, and the worst season since pre-Katrina when Sean Payton and Drew Brees arrived in 2006. It's just... I don't know what to make of it because I, I've covered this team for 20 years now. I've covered, you know, Dennis Allen since he got here and a lot of these guys since they arrived. And it, it's almost unfathomable to think that this defense that was a top 10 unit the last two years and was the backbone of the team is one of the worst in the NFL. It's given up so many big plays, can't get off the field on third down. It's, it's, it's been hard to watch. And then offensively, I do think it was the right decision to go with Andy Dalton over Jameis Winston. But nonetheless, they turned the ball over like crazy. And, and so, yeah, it's, just, it's been painful. And, uh, again, I think they could still pull out of it. I hate to sound like the optimist homer, but I have been, just what you said, the, the division being garbage. It's true. The Bucks lost again last night. So I think that's the light at the end of the tunnel is they're still in it. But you got to start winning. It's got to start this week against the Raiders, next week against the Ravens, and then the Steelers. You got three AFC teams, 
it, you really got to get on that little mini winning streak to get back to 500 to give yourself a chance. You know, something that stood out to me earlier this week is when we heard from Alvin Kamara. And what stood out to me about what he had to say was like, well, you know, we're noticing things that aren't being corrected in practice, and then they end up in the game, and no one's speaking up, and no one's speaking out about it. And I appreciate the fact that he stepped up and talked to the team and addressed the team and everything like that and said, hey, hey, we got to do better. We got to we, we got to be better at this and you know, holding guys accountable. But my question to you, Fletcher, is why is this waiting until week seven for guys to have to step up? Is this Dennis Allen not holding guys accountable? Is he not charging, you know, you know, challenging his guys to be more accountable? Is he not being more accountable? Because, I mean, if I'm hearing a player say, we're seeing mistakes in practice and they're not getting fixed and we're, we're committing the same mistakes during the game, that's a little alarming to me. Um, it, it's very alarming. And, you know, going back even further to another point, a couple of weeks ago, Mark Ingram was on a national TV show that Sean Payton was on. Kay Adams was hosting it. And Sean Payton joked with Mark Ingram. He said, hey, I want you and Alvin to hold on to the rock. And they all laughed. And Mark Ingram goes, I'm just glad you're not here, Sean. And, and they all laughed about it. But I thought, I don't know if that's that funny. Like, that's kind of an indictment on Dennis Allen and what's happening there. That if if you know if if Mark Ingram is scared of Sean Payton, who's not even the coach, and says, "I'm glad you're not here," because I guess they'd be held to pay, so to say, for the fumbles and the miscues. That doesn't say a lot of good about Dennis Allen. And so I I like Dennis. I think he's a really good football coach. I do think the concern is there are certain people who know. Sean Payton was a master motivator. Sean Payton was a crisis manager, so to say. Dennis is a great football coach. If everything was going well, or if Sean Payton was the head coach, he could go go right to school on the best offenses in the NFL and come up with these great defensive game plans. Now, not only does he have to be a good coach, but he's got to be a great crisis manager, and I'm not quite sure that's where his level of expertise lies. And so... Um, so, yeah, I think you're seeing more veteran players say they have to step up. And, and yeah, it, it, I also think, you know, and I kind of am wondering here, so I apologize this morning. I, I also think the organization tried to keep, let's bleed out as much of the Sean Payton way as possible. Well, I think that it's gone and it's over. And going forward, you're going to have to find a way to make this Dennis Allen's team. And I'm not quite sure what that is. You know, except a massive overhaul of the roster. But I think they thought continuity, the players, the coaches, do everything like we have, which is a very plausible way to go when Sean Payton left. But it's just not working out. Sean Payton's gone. You talked about Alvin Kamara. He referenced that numerous times that Sean Payton's gone. We've got to do it ourselves. And, and, and yeah, I, I, again, I, I could see them turning it around but I'm not overly optimistic that they will turn it around. Fletcher, we thought this team was going to be led by its defense because D.A. was the coordinator. He gets promoted to head coach, and they bring back the majority of their guys on that side of the football, and they replace a retiring Malcolm Jenkins with the Honey Badger, and they bring in Marcus May to take care of Marcus Williams. And, 
you know, they they draft a young man, Alante Taylor. We thought the defense was going to be a strength of this team. It's actually the thing that's kind of holding this team back in a lot of ways. It has regressed greatly. They're not as good stopping the run. They're not getting a pass rush consistently like they should be. They're not getting the takeaways. And they're a slew of missed tackles. How stunning is how quickly this defense has kind of regressed? It's, it's mind-blowing because the majority of the guys are the same. I do think one of the big letdowns has been the play of the safeties. That people forget how good Malcolm Jenkins was. He was really, really solid. Chauncey Gardner-Johnson's also not here. They traded him. And then Marcus Williams left, and he was a solid center fielder. I, I was one of the people who drank all the Kool-Aid and thought the Honey Badger will be as good, if not better, than Malcolm Jenkins. He's not even close to Malcolm Jenkins. Like, no, Tyra right. Matthew is a shell of himself, and he's on the field, but it's like he's not even there. Marcus May isn't, isn't half the player Marcus Williams was, and they still haven't found anybody to replace Chauncey Gardner-Johnson. So the safeties were a strength of this team. To go, to go along with a really strong front seven. But now the back end is totally out of whack. You know, Marshawn Lattimore is going to miss his third straight game. Paulson Adebo, who was a star of training camp, has not taken that step to become a great player in year two. Solid rookie season, awesome training camp. Injuries and in, in not being that guy have, have hurt him this year. And so while Pete Werner has stepped up at linebacker, and, you know, to me, it's just, yeah, the defense has regressed in a way that I don't think anyone saw coming. It would be like saying, boy, has Alvin Kamara gotten bad this year? He's so slow and can't do anything. You know, we don't see that. The whole defense, we, we, I just see a unit that it's hard to believe the last two years. I mean, this is a unit that went down to Tampa last year and shut out Tom Brady for the first time in almost 20 years and won a game 9 nothing. I don't know if they can if they could pitch a shutout now if if their lives depended on it. It's 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 just yeah they've had a lot of struggles and the biggest letdown is the safety position without question. There was a lot of optimism about a healthy Michael Thomas and what that was going to mean for this team and this offense after missing essentially all of two years, and here we sit going into the final game in the month of October and he's barely played at all, only a few games. What's a legitimate concern about how much you're going to get out of Michael Thomas, not only this season, but moving forward? Yeah, I I keep thinking that this is his last year here. I thought last year, because of the divide between he and Sean Payton, this will be it. He'll never be back. Then Dennis Allen took over, and they mended the fences, and they restructured his contract. I, I just don't think Michael Thomas is going to be here long term. Um, again, it's going to be a precarious money situation because the way the Saints operate the salary cap in their book, they'll have a lot of dead money, but I just don't think he's invested with this team anymore. I don't know if he's invested in his, as an NFL player anymore. Um, look, he was good in training camp, talked to the media for the first time in about three years. He seemed like he was a really good soldier, so to say, and, and couldn't wait to get out there to help this team win, but... Everybody that I've spoken to, including Dennis Allen, who's done press conferences about it, just seems perplexed. I mean, it's going to be, I think, five games this week. They could have put him on IR and used that roster spot. They thought this was going to be like a one-week injury, maybe two, and now they're on week four or five. This is definitely something that that no one saw, And, and I think there's a lot of wonderment out there of, 
what's going on with these guys. Same with Jarvis Landry. I mean, yes, he had an ankle injury, but it wasn't a high ankle sprain. It wasn't described as serious. And, you know, I think that Michael Thomas, ever since he got the, the mega payday, has not been the same guy. And, and Jarvis Landry came in here on that, you know, one-year prove-it contract, and it, 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 we don't know what to make of it. It's just you'd like to see these guys out there because they're putting up points and they're moving the offense, and they could probably do a lot better. I mean, look, one of the pick sixes the other week went through Mark West Calloway's hands. Probably doesn't go through Jarvis Landry or Michael Thomas's hands. And so having your more elite players out there it certainly benefits you, and, and yeah, it's just perplexing with those two, how and why they are not out here. Only got about 40 seconds left, Fletcher, but you believe the Saints are going to get a win Sunday inside the Caesar Superdome against the Las Vegas Raiders? I, I only am because I think if they don't, it really is maybe the final nail in the season coffin, so to say. So I think they need it. But look, it's a tough matchup. Marshawn Lattimore is not playing. You've got an elite receiver, a quarterback who can get the ball downfield, a running back who's playing very well. The Saints defense, as we just discussed, has been bad. So I could easily see the Raiders winning this game, but I think the Saints, it's desperation time, and they're at home. I'm going to go with the more desperate team. Brother, we're not desperate when we have you on. Thank you for making the time. Keep up the tremendous work, my friend, and enjoy the game on Sunday. I'll, I'll try to. That's Fletcher Mackel, WDSU, joining us here for the Big Easy Blitz. We've got to take a timeout. We'll wrap up today's show, special road trip edition of RP3 and Company, as we broadcast live from Hattiesburg, Mississippi. We'll give you the final results of the poll question of the day as well. That's all next right here on the game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and you're home for the Houston Astros and the LSU Tigers. Final results of the poll question of the day. We asked you after last night's loss, 39 to 24 to the Southern Miss Golden Eagles. Cajuns fall to four and four. They have four games left. Will they make it to a bowl game? Can they get to the six wins to get eligible for a bowl game? Will they make it? Final results. 43% of you say no. They will not go bowling this year in year one under Coach Des. 31% of you say maybe. And 26% of you say yes. Thanks for all who voted on the poll question of the day. And thanks for all who left their comments on Facebook and Twitter. Also want to take a moment here to thank our guest, James Yasko from the Lima Time Time podcast. Carrie Maggard sharing her journey about being a breast cancer survivor. Zach Miller for fantasy football advice. And, of course, Fletcher Mackle from WDSU joining us for the Big Easy Blitz. For the producer extraordinaire back in the game studios, holding it all down, making sure we look good, we sound good. Shout out to her, Hannah Five Names. I'm Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. That's going to do it us for today. We'll be back in the studio live on Monday from 6 to 9. But until then, be safe out there. Be kind to one another. Kevin Foote in Footnotes is up next right here on the game, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and your home for the LSU Tigers and the Houston Astros.